The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody. Help! Not just anybody. Help! You know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 261 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Athley, your host. Our topic today is the many faces of addiction recognizable to family caregivers. Addiction arises at any age. It arises from the use or abuse of illegal substances, addictive pain relief medications, and alcohol. It also arises with some behaviors such as gambling. Addiction is the condition of someone who experiences cravings for something, who has lost control over the use of the thing that's craved for, and who feels compelled to use the thing that's craved for despite harmful consequences, even seriously harmful consequences. Addiction is a serious and often progressive condition which may be complicated by denial on the part of the person and which may require treatment if the addicted person is to quit. Addiction may occur along with mental health problems or it may be caused by mental health problems or it may itself cause mental health problems. And addiction starts in young people. 70%, this is the statistic, of mental health or addiction problems start during childhood and adolescence. And particularly for addiction, 20% of addiction problems start at age 15 and older. Which is why our topic today, the many faces of addiction recognizable to family caregivers, is so important. To discuss it, my guest is Linda Bell. Um, Linda is the CEO of Bellwood Health Services, an addiction treatment center in Toronto, Canada. For 40 years, she's worked with addicted families and corporations and healthcare professionals, including the Canadian Department of National Defense, the United States Navy, and elders in the Eastern Arctic. She's the first Canadian to be appointed a fellow of the American College of Addiction Treatment Administrators, and for 11 years she was a board member of the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers. She's a member of the Wisdom Keepers Circle, led by a shaman or shaman from West Greenland, and she's an honorary member of the Morning Star Healing Society in South Dakota. So welcome to the show, Linda. Happy to be here, Gordon. Right. Now, first question for you. Please tell us more about your life, your career, and your experience with family caregiving. Well, I was thinking about this question, Gordon, and it's interesting because I come from a family of caregivers. 
My father was a physician, and in fact, he pioneered in addiction medicine. He brought people into our own home in 1946 after the Second World War. He'd become very interested in people with mental health problems because he'd been treating people who came home from the Second World War with shell shock. We call it post-traumatic stress disorder today. And he convinced my mother that uh, he could bring a few patients into our home with two young children and there would be uh, no problems. So that's how it started. And uh, at that time in Canada, the Minister of Health for the province of Ontario, where we are, said that any physician could take up to four patients in their own home before they needed a hospital license. Little did he know that he was going to be championing, championing a new illness, really that was viewed with a lot of stigma, a lot of criticism and moral attitude. And that's the household I was born into. So you inherited this sense of caregiving in relation to the particular illness that we're talking about, the particular condition, that is addiction. Now, I'd like you to tell us more about your work with Bellwood Health Services and the work of the services as these relate to addiction. Linda, please. Bellwood Health Services, we specifically took the name health services because we did not want to be looking at the stigma around addiction. And we also wanted to focus on the fact that we look at people recovering and developing a balanced, healthy lifestyle as they go through treatment and recovery. So we look at balance in their physical health and well-being, their psychological and emotional health and well-being, their social health and well-being, and their spiritual well-being. So we look at a holistic approach to treatment, and that goes back to 1948, because in 1948, as I said earlier, my father had been bringing people into our home, and the World Health Organization came out with its definition of health as a state of physical, mental, and social well-being, not merely the absence of disease. So that triggered the whole interest in holistic health. So our program has always looked at the whole person. And in the area of addiction, certainly you need to look at the entire person because physically people go through withdrawal. Physically they could have gastrointestinal problems, cardiac problems. They could have a number of physical problems in addition to the addiction. Psychologically and emotionally, addiction takes over a person's life it becomes the prominent feature in their life. It's uncontrolled so that they're not able to keep control, and that's very frustrating for people around an addict because they think they should be able to just pull up their bootstraps. The bottom line is the nature of the illness is they cannot control it, they cannot pull up their bootstraps. So consequently, socially, family and friends, parents and children, coworkers are all affected by this problem. So we have to involve them in the treatment and recovery piece. And then the last section that I mentioned, the spiritual well-being, comes from the fact that an individual whose life is controlled by an addiction 
It's driven by the addiction. They don't have a lot of sense of hope or purpose when they first come into treatment. They feel very guilty, very shameful, and the fact that perhaps they're going to die. So in recovery, as they start to get better and start to get a handle on their physical health, their psychological and emotional health, starting to look at relationships and how people really will stand by individuals, their sense of hope starts to set up a little bit of a spark, a little bit of a light that, in fact, maybe they can get out of this illness. That's a very powerful message, isn't it, that there is hope? It's a tremendous message because most people think that people do not recover from addiction. The fact of the matter is, with good treatment, people do recover from addiction. And we have research studies that have been going on since the 70s that show well over 75% of the people who come to us are going to get better. If they're referred by their companies, they do better again. So that um, we know that the success rate for recovery is very high, and there's a key to it, Gordon. The key is that people stay involved in a long-term support program, and that might be a self-help program. It might be a counseling program. It's better to have at least two. And when we look at our treatment and recovery, we have ongoing counseling that goes on for people for a minimum of a year up to five years. Now, that seems like a long time, but you need to remember that if you went for uh, cardiac surgery, if you went for cancer treatment, if you're a diabetic, all of these are chronic illnesses that require ongoing monitoring so that you can stay as well as possible. And addiction is a chronic illness, and that's the mystery around the fact that People don't understand it as such. They think you can go in and sort of dry out in a rehab quickly and then get back onto your life. And that's not the way this illness works. Now, I'd like to just go back in history. Please tell us how, in the 1940s, the Bellwood Health Services did the kind of things that you're talking about that you do now. What was the approach in the 1940s? Well, the approach was, um, as I said, my father was a physician. And he had had no training in university. So there were three things that came together to help set the stage. One was the definition from the World Health Organization. Two was the fact that Alcoholics Anonymous had had their first meeting in Toronto, Canada, in downtown Toronto. And three... He had had training in university on the healthy human, and he was interested in the potential of the human animal to be healthy. Those things came together, and then he learned from his patients. That's how it started. And he had to learn very quickly how to help people with withdrawal and detoxification because there were two little children in the house. There was a three-year-old and a one-year-old in the house at the time. So he had to maintain safety. So um, he uh, got in touch with some colleagues in the States and developed a procedure for helping to deal with uh, withdrawal reactions at that time. And, of course, today... 60 years later, we have different types of medications that we can use to keep people safe and get them through the withdrawal. So 
It starts with the physical and looking at the assessment. And then it took him 15 years of talking to patients and discussing with them the progression of addiction to really start to understand what was going on. And he would give lectures and discussions to them, and they would say, well, you're a pretty good doc, but you haven't got this right. And so the patients were his key teachers. But through that time, what he found is that if you could keep people sober, get them three square meals a day, mid-morning, mid-afternoon, and evening snack, and put some support around them, through the self-help community of Alcoholics Anonymous and the clinical community of my father and the nurse that worked with him, that people did stay sober and could get well. So that was the beginning. And my very quick comment back to you is, it sounds as though family caregiving was at the center of that start, because in a way, what you've described to us is that the four people that your father was looking after lived with you at home, and therefore, in that sense, became part of the family caregiving in the home. Now, we're going to talk more about those kind of things in the next segment, because uh, right now, it's time for us to take a break. And as I say, we have to pay the rent. So this is where we'll do it. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Linda Bell. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday. Stay at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile, radio to thrive by. When you think of museums, what comes to mind? Is it ancient history? Rotating displays of collections? Are they nice places to visit? Or are they essential to our cities and society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert. We'll discuss what the attraction is and historical importance of museums and what they contribute to the economic makeup of our cities and country. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. How do you know if you're living with an addict? If you think you know all the recognizable signs, you probably don't. If you're listening to and reading from the so-called experts, You probably don't. You need to hear from a parent, just like yourself, who has been there and can tell you what it's like firsthand. Please listen to Afflicted by Addiction with Bradley DeHaven. Our program is heard every Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. It just might save your life or the life of someone you love. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. 
If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Linda Bell. Our topic is the many faces of addiction recognizable to family caregivers. Now let's talk about the challenges that arise for family caregivers, especially parents, spouses and partners in recognizing and responding to addiction problems in their family members. So Linda, first of all, in your work, the work you do with Bellwood Health Services, what are the greatest challenges that arise for parents and spouses and partners in recognizing addiction problems in family members? Linda? I think the biggest problem for, for families and friends is understanding that addiction is an illness and that when they start to realize that it's starting to become an uncontrolled problem, they try to fix it. You know, maybe if I do, if, if I have dinner on the table at this time, children will think, well, if I did better in school, maybe that would make a difference. And they start to take the blame onto themselves, and they also try to start to fix the problem without realizing that what they're dealing with is the development of a very serious illness. And so it's a real challenge for families. Um, and the other part is, is that families get caught up in the addictive process. You cannot live with someone who is abusing alcohol and drugs or going out to the casinos or playing games on the, um, on the computer and neglecting the rest of the family without the rest of the family becoming affected. So there's a lot of stress and strain in the family as well. And what happens is that they're afraid to talk about it because sometimes, most often, they think that they're part of the problem. And if you ask the addict, they'll tell you you're part of the problem because whenever you try to confront somebody who's got an addiction problem, whether it's to a chemical or whether it's to a behavior, that as soon as you start to move on them, they're going to get defensive and they're going to push back. And what their goal is to get is to get you to back off because they don't want to deal with it. So that's the biggest challenge for family members. Now, is that what you've just described, that pushback? Is that part of the denial that, um, I, as I understand it, that people with addictions... Uh, often go through is is that part of it yes it is part of the denial and what you what you need to realize is that changes have happened within the body of the person who is addicted they start off they never thought that they were going to become addicted they didn't start off necessarily abusing some might have but they might have started off as a young person who found that alcohol or drugs or uh, disconnecting from the world around them by playing games on the computer or going to the casino gave them a welcome holiday from the stress in their life. So it was a coping tool. And, you know, the majority of people can use alcohol and drugs or, or gambling without running into trouble, but there's a percentage that will run into trouble. So if you're using the substance or the behavior to change the way you feel and to cope with stress and problems in your life, 
or you turn to them every time you're celebrating something, that you start to see that the alcohol or the drugs or the behaviors are taking over in many, many areas. And as that tolerance builds, there are changes within the central nervous system and the neurochemistry of the brain that is starting to hook certain individuals. If you get sick at the smell of a cork, you're never going to run into a problem with booze. You might run into a problem with pills. You might run into a problem with something else. But you're not going to run into trouble with booze. So those are the things that families don't understand. And they think that maybe they can fix it. But really, there's physiological changes that are happening inside of the addict. And the reason they get so defensive is that they know that if they can't get their alcohol or their drugs or they can't get to the casino or they can't get to the racetrack, they know that their body's going to go into withdrawal. And that is very scary. Right. Now, I want you you're talking about fixing things. I want to ask you more, to say more about the challenges that parents, spouses and partners have in responding to addiction problems in family members. You've already said some things about that, but I'd like you to say more about the way the response is such a challenge for family members. Yes. Well, and, you know, if it's your children, um, you know, one of the things that's happening in households today is that kids are playing on their Xbox and the parents are pulling their hair out because they can't get these kids to stop playing on the Xbox. And there's been new studies in China that have been looking at what happens in the brain, spending hours and hours in front of the computer screen. Uh, and you have families who turn around and say, I'm going to take this Xbox away from you. And what they don't realize is it's not just that they're taking a game away from the person. It's not that they're taking the Monopoly game away and putting it in a box. These kids are playing online with other kids. They've got a whole social network going on playing this game. So you're taking the person's game away, and you're taking the way and the means by which they are socializing away. And that's because they're not getting their homework done. They're not coming to have dinner at the table with everybody else. They're not doing their chores around the family, uh, family household that they're expected to do because they're preoccupied with the game. It's the same as you could be preoccupied with where you're going to get your next drink. When, you, when are you going to go to the casino next? When are you going to go and get um, lottery tickets next? It becomes a preoccupation. And families keep trying to move in, and they can't seem to find a window. In addition, what happens is that families... Uh, don't necessarily understand that they are pulled into the dynamic, as I said to you before, um, and that some of the things they're doing is not helping, but in fact enabling the person to continue. Um, we'll hold dinner until, uh, and even if you have to have it cold, at least dinner is here. Um, if there's an impaired driving charge because we're dealing with a drinker, you're going to get the best lawyer. Um, if kids are missing school or adults are missing work, somebody from the household phones up and says, so-and-so's got the flu today, so you're covering up for people. And that doesn't help because 
the more the person does not have to face the consequences of what their actions are causing, they're just going to get the message that they can continue on. Now, the catch-22 for a family member is, if I phone the boss and say that he's hung over and, and passed out on the living room floor, or if I'm in my office as a man and I get a call from my child saying, Mommy's asleep on the kitchen floor, you know, my boss is not necessarily going to be terribly understanding. And if I'm the one at home, I'm really counting on the fact, even if my partner has a drinking problem or a drug problem or a gambling problem, we need the paycheck to make ends meet. So it's a catch-22, and also families often don't know where to turn. So they don't know where to turn. They feel guilty. They feel like they're to blame. Maybe they've done something wrong. And so they start to deny or minimize the extent of the problem, too. And the big thing they really need to do is reach out for help because there is hope and things can turn around. And often they can turn around because just one member of the family decides to take the bull by the horns and get some help for themselves. And that one person can change the dynamic in the entire family. Right. Now, just on this question of changing the dynamic, um, some physicians and some experts in you know the the, the 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 last stages let's call them that way of addiction um believe that they have to say to the individual um unless you stop drinking you're going to die and they do that in the belief that that is perhaps the only warning that will have the appropriate effect getting the person to quit drinking. First of all, what's your view of that hard line, if I may call it that? And if you support it, do you see much of that? And if you don't support it, why don't you support it? I support a hard line because nobody comes into treatment because the light bulb's gone on and they say, oh, I've got a terrible problem, I need to get help. People who are addicted are not making rational decisions in a lot of the areas of their life, even in spite of the fact that they might be going to work every day. But they're not thinking clearly all the time. They're impaired. They're distracted. They're thinking about many other things. And when you hear about people having to reach the bottom, sometimes people never get back when they reach the bottom. That's like coming in at the end stage of cancer. If you can raise the bottom up, if you can help to create a crisis, and the doctor saying, you know, you better go for treatment or you're going to be dead in six months is often a crisis. It may get someone in or it may not, but with six months to live, that's a pretty sick individual. But it's, it's interesting that the people who can raise the bottom up the best are families and friends and employers. And you'll find that if they can come together and set up a plan and get some coaching on how to approach the individual and present them with the facts of what's going on with their behavior, that they care about them and they support them for getting treatment, it's amazing how many people will go for treatment. That's how Betty Ford got into treatment. Her family came together and talked to her about their concerns and what they wanted her to do about it. Right. 
So in other words, family caregiving, and I, I guess I'm biased in this respect, family caregiving, is, and I think you're stressing this point, is part of the treatment, part of the care, and part of the hope. Now, I'm making that as a statement, and I'm going to ask you in the next segment uh, questions that go around that uh, to see basically where you stand on that rather strong view that I've just expressed. But right now, it's time for us to take the break once more. This is Dr. Gordon Ellery, and my guest is Linda Bell. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. Tune in for What About Wealth every week to learn the vital answers to your questions about creating wealth, investing it, donating it, and protecting it. Your hosts are Rich Bloomfield and Rick Durfee, who explain the principles that govern wealth in terms you can understand. Building and preserving positive wealth requires correct action, but few people know how wealth really works. Listen every Tuesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and find the answers you need about wealth. Nine different energy systems make up the energy body. Energy is all around us and connects us. Energy exerts a major control over our biology and is a big reason why you should be tuning in to energy medicine and optimal health with your host, Dr. Ann Deatley. We'll explore energy balance techniques, tips, and patterns to keep your flow of energy optimal to maintain maximal health. By adopting these techniques, you will keep your energy body and physical body in harmony. Listen for Energy Medicine and Optimal Health, Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris, real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris Efesiu. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Linda Bell. Our topic is the many faces of addiction recognizable to family caregivers. Linda, now I want to talk about help in overcoming the challenges that arise for family caregivers, especially parents, spouses, and partners, 
in recognizing and responding to addiction problems. It's the addiction problems you were talking about in the last segment. So first question to you, Linda, is in the communities you work with, what help is most needed by family caregivers in recognizing addiction problems in family members? I think what they they need to know the most is that uh, this is an illness and help is available and they should be reaching out to a professional. And if their doctor can't refer them to a professional, then look for somebody in, uh, you know, either online or in the phone book or whatever that specializes in addiction so that you might be able to get some help there. And then if you're dealing with a young person, then maybe you want somebody who's going to be specializing in youth with addiction problems. But reach out. Don't keep the problem to yourself. Don't sit back and say, I'm frightened to call. What are they going to say? They're going to get mad at me. You know, the person's going to get mad at you regardless. But if this was somebody who had a heart disease, if this was somebody that discovered a lump in their body somewhere, the family would be after them to go and see somebody who specializes in this area. And there are people all around the world that specialize in this area. And there's also self-help programs, Alcoholics Anonymous, Al-Anon, Alateen for Kids. Uh, there's Narcotics Anonymous. There's Cocaine Anonymous. So that there's Gamblers Anonymous. There's help available for families. And I think that's the biggest thing for people to remember is that you're not alone and there are other people out there and you can learn to cope with this problem and in fact learn how you might be able to help direct your person toward your person you care about toward treatment. But in the meantime, you can get some help for the stress and the strain that you're under and um, to help get your life in order so that you can be healthier and more objective when you're dealing with the day-to-day issues that create in a family where there's an addiction. Right. Now, question of when is the best time for the family caregivers to recognize addiction problems. I mean, it's easy to say, well, at the earliest possible stage or something like that. Um, But what is the time, the best time? What is the time that um, should be the focal point of well, there's, there's, two, there's a couple of places you can approach it. Um, if you're going to try and uh, confront somebody who's got an addiction problem, then it might be because they're being kicked out of school because of their alcohol or drug use and their absenteeism or they're on the verge of losing their job or they've got a, uh, they're in trouble with the law or something like that. So if there's a crisis, that's a good time to move because people are feeling vulnerable at that particular time. But it's also a scary time when there's a crisis. The other thing is is to remember that you don't have to wait until there is a crisis. You can start to get some help today for yourself as a family member. You can get some help so that you're not alone, and then you'll be more prepared when there is a crisis. And then the third part is, is if you start to get some help for, for yourself today, 
you can work with a counselor and get some coaching on how you might be able to approach your loved one and confront them with what's going on about what they need to do, what you see is happening in their life, and what you want them to do. And you can start to create a crisis for the person to get them in earlier. So the sooner you get some help for yourself as a family member, the better it is for you and the better it is the chance that you might be able to intervene earlier with the person you care about. That speaks to what I would call training for the family member in coping with this situation, the situation whether it's a crisis or not. Um, first of all, have I understood that correctly? And secondly, if I have, is this other places that family caregivers can go to for that kind of training. Linda? Gordon, you exactly are exactly right. Training is required. Um, Most families will know that if they've talked to the person in their family about giving up the Xbox, giving up the drinking, giving up the gambling, giving up the pornography, what happens is the person is going to be resistant It falls on deaf ears, and it's very disturbing for family members. And so they start to give up. They start to lose hope. So I think that the training and the coaching is really important, and you can get that in so many ways today. You can do it with a counselor, and it's always best to work with a counselor um, because then you've got a third party who's objective, who can really start to work with you and help you to decide how you're going to move forward and maybe work with a number of family members about how together you can approach the person with the problem. But there's also books out there today. There's videos out there today. There's um, information online so that you don't need to be alone. And if you're even in an isolated area where you say, well, listen, there's nobody here. I live in the country. Um, you can get, you can go online and get support online through people who are in the recovery network. Now, I'm still really on this question of support for family caregivers. And I'm going to ask you about the support that they need for themselves to cope. That is something different from um, training, the training we've been talking about, important though that is. But what I hear from family caregivers so often on this program is it is in the end they're exhausted and they're exhausted physically, they're exhausted psychologically and sometimes they're exhausted financially. So what about, what do you think about support for family caregivers so that they can cope and keep themselves going? Linda? It's very important, and uh, depending on where you are, uh, there are treatment programs, many treatment programs that have programs specifically for families, and you don't even have to be a family member who has someone in that treatment center in order to attend the family program. And just as we said at the very beginning, Gordon, about the physical, the psychological, emotional, and the social well-being, we want to look at that the same way for the families. As you said, they're very stressed out. Life is very complex for them. They're worried. um, They're not eating well. They're not sleeping well. So you want to be able to get them into a program where you can start to teach them 
ways to manage their stress and tension, relaxation techniques, talk to them about their nutrition. They should be making sure that they're eating three square meals a day in a mid-morning, mid-afternoon, and evening snack, and the same with the children. You want them to be able to talk to people, whether it's through a self-help program or through a counselor, to look at how do they problem solve, how do they react so that they're not spending their energy reacting in a way that is not being effective with the person who's got the problem and is just making them more stressed and more discouraged and more hopeless. So you look at families starting to move even without the person who's got the addiction, starting to learn how to live even with the addiction in the household in a way that is not compromising their own health but is promoting um, healthy, balanced daily living for the family members. Right. Now, still on that same theme, but looking, let's look now at the point where, yes, the family member is getting help, um, but it's a tough year. You said it's needed, if I understood you right, perhaps for as long as a year. What is the kind of support or training even that family caregivers need during that phase? Well, yes, we've recognized there's a problem, and yes, the family member is getting help. What's the help that family caregivers need? Well, if the person is in recovery then? Yes. Yes. Well, I think that the family has to walk the path of recovery for themselves for exactly the same way. Because in the relationship, as we said earlier, everybody in the family is affected. And so the family needs to learn how to communicate together in an open and honest way. And that means everybody needs to learn to communicate well. Um, Trust does not go back on like the flip of a light switch. It has to be earned. And sometimes families find that when somebody's been addicted, they have the control. They control the finances. They control the decision-making in the family. Maybe the spouse does. And now all of a sudden, the other spouse is clean and sober, and they want to take control. But the family doesn't really trust them and isn't prepared to take a risk and doesn't want to give up control. So it's a lot of negotiation. And, you know, it's really not unusual, although the negotiation points might be different from other illnesses, but if you live with somebody who's got cancer, you're worried and stressed out all the time, too. You're losing sleep, too. And, um, you know, sometimes you're afraid of what you're going to say and afraid of what the reaction is going to be. So walking the path of recovery together is just as important for the family and the children or the parents as it is for the person who has the addiction. That point that you made about restoring the trust, earning the trust, so that the recovery can lead to the return to a good life, a normal life, I think is also very profound because um, that is part of the hope, isn't it? That, exactly. Yes, we can, we can settle back and be a normal family. Right. One of the things we suggest to our families, but we uh, um, suggest to our patients as well, is to start to keep a daily journal because you have to keep honest if you're writing a daily journal. 
You know, you can call on other people if you're talking to them. But if you're going to write it down and try and fool yourself, you're going to catch yourself. This is something the patients told us about back in the 50s. And so we always tell people to keep a journal. And I remember a family I worked with, they had gone through the treatment program, all the pain, all the shame, all the issues. They'd gone through one year of attending weekly aftercare meetings and support. They were also going to self-help meetings and support. And one year later, the trust had rebuilt within this couple that they were able to sit down and share their journals with one another. And one of the things they found is that when one partner was feeling anxious or maybe at risk and stressed out and maybe thinking of relapsing, the spouse was anxious and worried and watching and trying to make sure that things held together. And you could see how the two of them almost did this dance of recovery together. And a year later, the trust was there that they would share their private journals. Talk about a wonderful recovery story. Yeah, the dance of recovery. I love it. Now, we're going to take the short break. This is Dr. Gordon Anthony. My guest is Linda Bell. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM. Please stay with us. We will be back. Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Is your business model robust enough? In today's ever-changing business environment, people are working to transform themselves, their futures, and their business. Tune in to Business Reinvention with your host, Nancy Lynn. To stay ahead of the game in business, you have to constantly reinvent yourself and your organization. With Nancy's experience and that of her guest experts, you'll learn from stories of inspiration, innovation, and forward thinking. Listen for Business Reinvention, live every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river. Like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite.
Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Linda Bell. Our topic is the many faces of addiction recognizable to family caregivers. Linda, let's now talk about the things that you would like to do to accelerate progress in overcoming the challenges that arise for family caregivers in recognizing and responding to addiction problems. I'm kind of putting you in the position of a leader or a politician, and I'm asking you what your future programs, policies are going to be so that I can decide whether I'm going to vote for you. So my first question is, what more would you like to do through Bellwood Health Services? to accelerate the progress in overcoming these challenges we've been talking about. Linda? Gordon, I think that the, the most important thing is to do exactly what we're doing today, which is to start talking about this problem. We don't talk about addiction and mental health. In Canada, we're talking a little bit more about mental health, and then addiction seems to be tagging along behind. And I really think we need to talk about it so that people can understand that this is an illness and people can recover and that they deserve to recover. They're not bad people. They're people who need help. And one of the things that drives me crazy in Canada is that we we have a number of addiction services across the country. And at the same time, we have our politicians saying we don't have enough money to help with new medical um, situations. We've got waiting lists, and we want to back the waiting lists down. We don't have enough money to look after the seniors, and, of course, I'm a senior now. And I look at this, and I just shake my head because in Canada – The federal government has statistics that show it costs us $40 billion a year in lost productivity, health care, and the judicial system because of alcohol and illicit drugs. That is a lot of money. There are studies that show for every dollar invested in treatment, and when I say treatment, I mean good treatment, for every dollar invested, there's at least a $5 return or more. So it seems to me that we've got more than enough money if we weren't worrying about the next election all the time. We've got more than enough money to um, treat addiction properly, good quality care, people can get sober, can get well, and over the long run, we would have lots of money to do the other things we want to do. And what's interesting out of that $40 billion, and this is where I'm putting my energy because I don't really think that the bureaucracy and the government is going to be able to change things, My focus is on business and industry, because $24 billion in lost productivity and absenteeism, short-term and long-term disability, is the cost of business and industry in Canada. Now, it's it's going to be similar and more in other countries, just depending on um, how big the countries are. So my focus is on business and industry, because to be candid... Business and industry has always taken the lead with this problem. 
They did in the 40s when they had the American Occupational Medical Association, and they had a committee on problem drinking. That was the predecessor to employee alcohol programs that many corporations have today. In the 70s, these employee alcohol programs became broad brush employee assistance programs. Now, the difference between the broad brush and the alcohol specific programs is that in the early days, the people who were working in those programs were people in recovery. They knew how to spot somebody with an addiction. Now most of the people in those programs come from colleges and universities. They don't know how to do an assessment of addiction. They haven't been trained. It's a specialty area. And most employee assistance programs allow an employee to have three to five counseling sessions. And we discussed earlier that this is a chronic illness. It does not lend itself to three to five counseling sessions. And unfortunately, and this is where my energy is going to go, companies think that they're dealing with it because they have an employee assistance program, and they don't realize that this health problem that's costing them $24 billion a year is falling through the cracks of their employee assistance program and that it needs to be addressed in a different way. That's my focus. That's a very powerful, pointed focus across a very broad and difficult area, but it's one that it's a message that really ought to be heard loud and clear by politicians, by bureaucrats, and by healthcare professionals of all kinds. So, if you were standing for election, uh, I'd vote for you. But now, you. <laughs> but now, I want something else uh, to put something else to you as a as a kind of question. What's your message for family caregivers or families who are concerned about the possibility of addiction problems in their family members? What's your message for them? My message is, is if you're concerned about a family member that might have a problem, you're probably, you're most likely right. There probably is a problem there. The message I would have is get help, pick up the phone immediately, take action, don't cover it up, don't second-guess yourself any further, get somebody who's a specialist to help you out so that you can figure out is it really a problem or is there something else going on. Um, It's important not to minimize or deny what's going on. Um, It's important to realize that this is not a shameful thing and it's not something that families have done wrong and that the person, if they have a problem, simply needs help. They're not a bad person. They're a person who needs help. And really, when I looked at my research department recently and said, if you look at everything over and above alcohol and drugs today, how prevalent is this problem? Because we used to say about 10% of the population. And when you look at gambling, you look at the Internet, you look at gaming, you look at all these other activities that people use to change the way they feel and to cope, it's now 20% of the population. And for every one of those people, there's about five to seven other people directly affected. So that means it's almost every household has this somewhere in their range. So 
So let's start talking about it. Help is available. People do recover and lead wonderful, productive, happy lives. And I'd add, not in any way, or in every way to support you, that that message that recovery is possible, the message of hope, and the message of success is one that needs to be emphasized because very often in the stories we, we see in the media, for example, it's anything but success. Um, and you, you're correcting that by saying work at it. Families work at it, individuals, and success is within your grasp as is hope. So, Linda, unfortunately, we've come to the end of this important episode I want to say thank you very much. I want to say thank you for sharing with us your experience, your own experience, your own history of your father's work, your insights and your advice. And all success to you in your work because it matters. And I want to say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And from our listeners, I'd like to hear about topics, ideas for topics, or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. Our next episode will be My Mum Died and I Closed Her Home. Please join us, same time, same spot on the internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And